Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I was off Thursday, Friday, and Monday with full intentions of doing a podcast those days, but by the end of the first four, I was plum worn out from doing lots of chores. Apologize for not giving you notice that we were skipping on Monday. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with the regulars, Laura Johnston, Leila Tassi, and Lisa Garvin. And Lisa, if we're talking about marijuana, you're first up. (laughs) The debate over legalizing recreational marijuana in Ohio, which voters will decide in November, covers a lot of ground, but rarely do we hear anybody talk about the money. How much does Ohio State University say Ohio could realize in taxes from legalized marijuana? It's a big figure, Chris. Ohio State Moritz College of Law did an estimate, and they said that if issue two passes in November, tax revenues for the first full year of the program would be from $182 million to $218 million. By year five of the program, it could get as high as $403 million, but it could decline after that because of cheaper prices and possibly a saturated market, but that's looking pretty far ahead. The study looked at nearby states with recreational laws, Michigan and Illinois, um, and older laws in Colorado, Washington, Nevada, and Oregon to make their estimates. So the recreational marijuana, if it passes, it will be taxed at 10%, and it's an excise tax, which means it's a product-specific tax. Other states have used wholesale taxes, or they've taxed marijuana based on the THC levels. Um, Ohio is among the lowest taxes, but the legislature could change that. Apparently, Republicans in the, the legislature are mum about this until the election results come out, they'll probably, the part, eyes will probably pop at the numbers. But Tom Heron, who's an attorney with the Coalition to Regulate Marijuana Like Alcohol, he says these estimates match what occurred in other states, and he says that it validates legalization in Ohio. I'm amazed at how popular these are. Laura has mentioned whenever she's driving up to her cottage in Canada, she sees billboards in Michigan everywhere. And I recently have had cause to see a new place that's been opened up, and it is nonstop mobs going in and out of it. What I wonder is, while these taxes go up, do alcohol taxes drop as a result? Are people switching, or are we just adding a whole new level of inebriation to the populace by legalizing marijuana? 
I don't know. That's a good question. I think that there are some people who do one or the other, and there are some people that do both. So it'll be interesting to see what they say. But, you know, Heron warns that if you have the taxes that are too high, that means you're competing with the unregulated market. And, you know, we want to put that unregulated market out of business, says Heron. So they don't want the taxes to be too darn high. But this is going to be an experiment. We'll see once the door is open for recreational marijuana what the demand is. I assume it will be high and how fast prices drop. I don't know. Alcohol taxes are really high, and there's not a huge moonshine network going on. The whole alcohol question has been on my mind a bit lately because the studies that have come out over the last five years have made crystal clear that in every way, shape, or form, it's bad for you. It's that, that there's no amount of it that is really safe to drink, and it's a calculated risk people take, especially women with regard to breast cancer. And I just keep thinking that if you legalize marijuana, especially for people that are maybe 40 and under, does this create a huge societal shift away from the ever-increasing use of alcohol to marijuana? Does marijuana and the gummies become the new alcohol for the younger generations? That's a very good question. I think only time will tell. I I think that's a good question too. And maybe people do both depending on what the situation is. But I, I totally, hands down, We'll want to see what happens with Ohio in the billboards. The last time I drove with my mom up to Michigan, there was a an airplane trailing a, a banner ad, right? And it said <laughs> Leaf and Bud. And my mom was like, look at that. What? Maybe that's a new garden center. <laughs> <laughs> I, it Look, they're, they're packed. And th- that recent study that showed that the younger you are, the more you see alcohol as a poison does bode well for the marijuana industry. We've, we have not seen, I don't think we've ever seen a year really where alcohol sales have dropped in Ohio, but it'll be interesting to see what the next 10 years bring. Interesting look by Ohio State University. Check out the story. It is on cleveland.com. This is Today in Ohio. Is it possible that the deputy sheriff who shot a beanbag at a guy who was walking away from the violence of the post-George Floyd riot in Cleveland won't be charged because of a state law nobody knew about? Layla, this is an outrage story. It is a fascinating story that Adam Faris wrote. He he tells us that the law in question, which is Ohio Revised Code 2917.05, it's been mentioned only one time in court filings since it was enacted in 1974. It bars criminal charges against police officers who use force during a riot, and but there are certain caveats to that. Geauga County Prosecutor James Flays is handling the case against Deputy Bruce Laurie, uh, who shot the beanbag round that destroyed one of the eyes of John Sanders on the day of the protest. Flays was doing legal research for this case when he came across this obscure law, and it really threw him for a loop. The law says police officers and firefighters cannot be charged with a crime if they use non-lethal force. That's as long as they have probable cause to believe using force is necessary to disperse or apprehend rioters. And it also says officers or firefighters cannot be charged if they have probable cause to believe deadly force is necessary to disperse or apprehend the rioters whose conduct has created a substantial risk of serious physical harm to others. So Flay said he's trying to determine whether or not this law prohibits him from even pursuing charges against Lori because it's if it seems there's statutory criminal immunity under these circumstances, Lori said he can't bring the case to a grand jury. The, the, there's been some debate uh, among people who send us emails and messages 
pointing out that this guy at some point had thrown a rock or was seen throwing a rock. But what is indisputable is at the point he was hit with the beanbag and lost his eye, he was walking away. Right. He was of no threat to anybody, and the deputy shot at him anyway. Um, it did, does seem like, if you read between the lines in Adam's story, there, there are caveats uh, that you could use to get around this law uh, because of more recent precedents having to do with probable cause. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting how the, the experts that, that Adam spoke to hadn't even really heard of this before. Uh, Lewis Katz, who has taught criminal law for 57 years at Case, had never heard of it. He said that the law is really vague the way it's written, and it could be used by prosecutors who are looking for an excuse not to charge cops. And he said that because this victim was walking away, as we said, this really calls into question whether the deputy had probable cause upon firing. And another legal expert pointed out that the probable cause threshold is a higher legal standard than if an officer uses force outside of a riot when the standard is objectively reasonable. So I think the case can be made that he that this prosecutor can indeed take this to the grand jury. There were some defense attorneys quoted in it's about Chandra and then a guy in Sandusky that had some quite disparaging things to say about this law and whether it applies. It's a fully reported story. It was a nice job by Adam. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The Cleveland Catholic Diocese holds full sway over the schools that it operates and can enforce its new LGBTQ policy in them. But what about the Catholic schools that are independent of the diocese? Laura, how are they reacting to the bishop's call? They are not immediately embracing this policy. And I think they're looking to their students and alumni and parents and maybe seeing that They don't want to go down that road. I don't know exactly because they're being pretty straight with their message. They're saying in letters and emails that they will continue to offer compassion and counsel to all students and be sensitive during this formative time in the lives of their students. So Magnificat High School, run by the Sisters of Humility of Mary, that's an all-girls school in Rocky River. The kids there created an online petition urging administrators to come out against it, basically. And the president said in an email that the MAGS values its Catholic identity, plans to continue to work to be a a welcoming community, and that they're deeply concerned about the heightened risk of mental health challenges, especially by LGBTQ youth, and continue to accompany them, stand with them, and accept them with love, respect, compassion, and sensitivity. And so nobody's saying we're completely against this, but there's a lot of talk about acceptance and uh, and support of students, St. Ed's, Ignatius, Walsh, St. Joe's. These are schools that have not said automatically we're going with the diocese policy. What I found interesting about this story was there's been a huge amount of controversy about this. And the responses to these schools read to me like, please go away. Please leave us out of this. Please don't talk to us. <laughs> we don't yes. want anything to do with it. Just go away. Go deal with the, the bishop. Go deal with the diocese. Please, please, please. That's not us. To... It's not us. We do, yeah. Yeah, hands up. We have nothing yeah. to do with it. Yeah. I mean, which is what the bishop could have done. He didn't have to issue this policy and could have much more subtly gotten some messaging across. But but in, instead, we have the controversy that continues. We're, we're two weeks in and we're still hearing from people that are quite upset about it. So, yeah, in, I mean, no ahead. one's going directly against the bishop. No one's going to say he's wrong, right? 
that would probably not be a good idea in well, no. their I hierarchy. Mean, not, nobody in an, a leadership mode, but many. Right. Oh, right. The, right. Correct. Correct. Yeah, there are lots of people saying the bishops are wrong. Yes, just no one in, in heading up these schools, but they do feel like these statements are trying to be a lot more compassionate. So can you explain for people that don't understand these things why a Jesuit school doesn't have to listen to the bishop? Because they're not on the diocesan school. Like if the diocese has a school district, then that's kind of like all under the bishop's purview. But these are independent schools run by independent religious orders. And so Jesuits, I mean, that's probably the most well-known, most education forward order of I don't know, priests, basically. And um, they have their own hierarchy, just like all the, you know, the, the sisters and the nuns. They, I mean, everybody answers up to a different part of the church. It is so, a very fractured kind of fiefdom setup. So do the Jesuits not answer to the Pope then? <sighs> I, I, you're the one who went to Catholic school. For Your husband years. teaches at a Catholic school. I figure PSR. you would know this stuff. PSR. Um, no, I don't know exactly. I mean, everybody eventually answers to the Pope, right? <laughs> I mean, anybody who's Catholic certainly would like that to be the true. believes that that's the order of, of hierarchy. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The commission drawing new maps for legislative districts has been holding hearings in remote places, probably because they don't want people to come. One was in Geauga County Monday. Lisa, what did we hear? And what does reporter Jeremy Pelzer's analysis of the latest proposed maps say they hold for the future? Well, the Monday hearing was at Punderson Lodge in Geauga County, which is at least 30 miles from downtown Cleveland. And they actually added an afternoon hearing at that site after people complained. The morning meeting was extremely well attended. Um, of the hearings held so far, there was another one outside of Columbus last week. Not one person has come out in support of the proposed maps, but the ire comes from both sides. The speakers took issue with the commission itself and with the specific proposed legislative districts that they're presenting. Jerry Wald is a Cuyahoga County um, Republican executive director. He says he was against putting seven hills in a Democratic-leaning district that extends all the way north to near downtown Cleveland. He called that a Democratic gerrymander. He also suggested redrawing two western county house districts, so one has a slight Republican majority. He says Cuyahoga County is not just a Democratic stronghold. It has one of the largest Republican populations. I, I didn't get to verify that. Uh, the Democratic State Senator Kent Smith of Euclid said the maps have led to Republican overrepresentation in Cleveland, Dayton, and Cincinnati. And he says it's actually more than the Ohio Constitution allows. He says this is a way to minimize Democratic voices by actually making their districts larger than they should be. Other testimony concerned um, when the commission, that the commission will approve maps that are more severely gerrymandered than the current map, which has a Republican advantage. They have 67 of 99 House seats and they have 26 of 33 Senate seats in the current map, which is ruled illegal, but we had to use it anyway. Um, so yeah, it was an interesting thing, but the commission was also chastised for holding Northeast Ohio meetings on Yom Kippur. And that 5.30 meeting that was added yesterday, but it was two hours before Yom Kippur ends at sunset. So they were kind of upset about that. But Auditor Keith Faber says, well, that's what happens when you act on the fly. 
Yeah, although they wouldn't have ever scheduled a hearing on Christmas or one of the Christian holidays. It was incredibly insensitive to do it. But look, these aren't legitimate hearings. You don't hold a hearing in Punderson for Northeast Ohio. You hold it in Cleveland if you want to get it, or Akron, or someplace where people are, the population actually is. I, when the maps first came out, I didn't know what to think about them. And then Jeremy Pelzer did a really nice job putting it into perspective. This is a huge, or likely is a huge gain for Republicans. It is. I mean, the numbers will go up the way they're setting it up. And because they have a cooked Supreme Court, they're figuring that they won't declare them unconstitutional, which gets us back to the central theme of all these conversations Maureen O'Connor's plan to get the elected leaders out of this process entirely and bring independent, normal people into it who are not trying to favor their colleagues in their own districts. And it does look worse than the maps that we have now. You know, that the the Republicans have gained at least a few seats in in each house or each each chamber. Yeah, it's uh, the the whole thing is is crooked from the outset. And we just got to get rid of this system. You are listening to Today in Ohio. Who is the self-described cash flow king of podcast fame? And why is this North Olmsted would-be magnet suddenly in a whole lot of trouble, Laura? Because he's a Ponzi scheme leader. And this is not really about flipping houses and making money. He's accused in a lawsuit of running an $11 million Ponzi scheme, ripped up dozens of investors. And the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission filed a lawsuit in federal court against him. His name is Matthew Motiel. His companies are North Shore Equity Sales, the Marie Paul Company, North Shore Equity Management, and a couple of other LLCs. He's 42. They say this is a four-year scheme in which he falsely promised high returns to 60 investors. And the whole thing was a scam because he would say, I'm going to buy this house, I'm going to flip it, I'm going to sell it, and you're going to make money. But he bought a house for something like $46,000, and it collected some more than a million dollars in investor money on it. And he just like pocketed that and rented a lakeside mansion for $107,000. He had $73,000 to spend on courtside seats to a Cavs game. He had student loans, apparently $45,000 on that. Um, 14 grand at Starbucks and another 14 grand at pizza places. He just spent it all. Yeah, I don't understand the thinking of people like this. And you start to wonder whether this is a mental illness. There is only one way these things end, and that's with long prison terms and public disgrace. You cannot pay early investors with the investment of late investors without generating the money. And while you're spending it profligately, it's all going to come crashing down. We've seen it over and over again. This guy is in his 40s, so he's not young and he has been around long enough to know how these things work. What drives people like this? I don't know. You know, and honestly, as a consumer, obviously, this guy should not be doing what he's doing. He is breaking the law. He is taking advantage of people, people who don't know better. Well, he's accused of doing all that. Thank you. Thank you. The prosecutors say that. I mean, the cash flow king. I just want to tell people if an investment seems too good to be true, it's probably too good to be true. And go put your money in the bank or, you know, the stock market or something rather than some guy who's called cash is king because he fleeced a cancer researcher from Florida 
um, a Massachusetts woman used her entire retirement account to vest with him. A lieutenant colonel from the Air Force complained publicly that he needed the payments because he had to be deployed to Afghanistan. I, I, I mean, so these people never met him. He just was promising. I mean, I guess <laughs> house flipping just seemed too good to or seemed reasonable to people. I don't know. Well, what. as Gordon Gecko said in Wall Street, greed is good. Although you would think the first red flag is a guy who calls himself the cash flow king. I mean, that's like, uh, you know, Ali's discount market kind of advertising. <laughs> hey, I'm going to make you a dollar. You would think that that would be automatically suspicion raising, but he apparently fleeced a bunch of people. Interesting that this just keeps happening over and over again. These stories never cease to amaze you because people are parted with their big money. They never get it back. And Guys do long prison terms. And I'm sure we'll hear from him in five, six years with a right to be forgotten. <laughs> and say that he's been, he's learned his lesson. Yeah, and, and yeah. He's reformed. He's gotten his court record. Only sealed. after he pays every. I mean, first yeah. of all, no. Second, pay everyone back. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Back when Jimmy Demore and Frank Russo were running Cuyahoga County, their corruption deterred a lot of honest businesses from doing business with the county. That regime is long gone, Layla. So why is the county having so much trouble finding firms to take the county's business? Reporter Caitlin Durbin's interest was really piqued when she heard County Councilman Dale Miller wonder aloud during a meeting, doesn't anybody want to do business with the county? Because as it turns out, a lot of county contracts attract few, if any, bids at all. So to get at this, Caitlin reviewed 260 no-bid sheets that companies filled out in 2022. These forms are, are designed to give the county feedback on why a company has decided to pass up the chance to bid on a county contract after the county has reached out to them to consider to ask them to consider sending in a proposal or bid. It's feedback for the county on their contracting process. And, and what Caitlin dis discovered is that a number of reasons are cited by these companies for passing on county business. Sometimes it's as simple as the fact that the particular business doesn't offer the goods or services that the county was looking for in that particular case. But other times, their responses are more telling. They've complained that the county's notification system for available work is broken, basically. One contractor said she's signed up many times to be notified early when contracts are available, and she never receives those notifications. Often businesses say they're too small to qualify as the primary vendor on a contract, though they'd be willing to subcontract in a portion of the work. And sometimes companies said they just didn't want to work with the county. They blamed payment or pricing issues that make it hard to make payroll, the time-intensive application process, or their belief that the county plays favorites. I, the, reading in between the lines on this one, you really think it's a lot of red tape. Whereas if, yeah. you know, if Medical Mutual is hiring vendors, it puts out its bid sheet, people bid, they, they hire them and they go and they pay on time. Whereas the government, it's red tape, red tape, red tape, slow payments, bureaucracy. Uh, I could see why people don't want to do business with it. We've off, look, we deal with the county government. It's not fun. They're not that responsive, right? Yeah, right, right. I mean, it's it was it was very fascinating in the part of the story where there were very specific complaints from vendors that that should be very illuminating for the county. I, I you would think that they would take these all to heart, but they complained about that excessive amount of paperwork that's involved and how that needs to be streamlined and 
and and how you know one there was one vendor that complained that the the county engineer grossly underestimated the cost of a project and made it impossible to submit a bid that was realistic and then there were others who said that the county's payment schedule is too spaced out and and should be biweekly so companies can meet their own payroll demands those all seem like reasonable things to fix i think the county is trying to to uh address some of those concerns but sometimes there isn't a solution to the problem. I mean, for instance, the law requires some contracts go to the lowest bidder, and often that's the largest company that might be using non-union workers or has fewest the fewest overhead costs and stuff like that. So that's disenfranchising to some of those small business owners. Well, and a lot of these safeguards are safeguards. They're supposed to protect the public's money, and we've seen frequently in previous administrations the squandering of the public's money. So having the safeguards is important for that. Mm -hmm. It makes you wonder whether the original framework for county government, which exists in most counties, where you had an independently elected auditor, would work if the auditor weren't part of the Democratic Party machine. If you if you had a, somebody who was the auditor whose job was to make sure the money is spent the way it's supposed to be, would that allow for the administration that is doling out the money to be more efficient? We haven't had that independent check here for as long <laughs> as I've been here, but it's sad. I Reading some of the small business contractors' comments, it was sad because you get the feeling they'd like to get that money. They're trying to thrive. They're trying to have some permanence, but they just can't afford to deal with such a backwards place. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Good stuff by Caitlin. It's on Cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Euclid made big news among lovers of the North, Northeast Ohio lakefront with its deal to shore up the coastline for property owners in exchange for a public trail along the water. Looks like another Cleveland suburb might go down the same path. Lisa, which one and where? Yeah, this was actually be in Lakewood along what they call the Gold Coast. So planners for the city of Lakewood, Cuyahoga County, and a Detroit-based consultant, Smith Group, they're in the early stages of an 18-month, $1.4 million plan to shore up erosion along 3,800 feet of lake shoreline. It's very similar to a project in Euclid that starts at Sims Park and goes east for about, about a mile. And that's a trail that I use regularly. It's a wonderful uh, amenity. So uh, they've been encouraging homeowners associations at 13 residential towers along the coast to grant a public easement for a new trail. And that's what they did at Sims Park. And this would be in exchange for long-term erosion control. County Public Works Director Michael Deaver says they have letters of interest from 13 homeowners associations, and they're in discussion with neighboring property owners as well. They don't want to use eminent domain. That's not what they did at Sims Park. All the homeowners agreed. And so they really want to fix this. There's a 60-foot cliff right behind these towers. And even though there's concrete riprap and, and other stuff down at the bottom, it's still eroding out. You know, there's shale and there are pieces of shale that are, are falling off as it gets eroded behind that. So they really need to uh, shore that up. They would replace it with new structures cobble beaches to break up the wave action. Then they would have a trail atop the cliff and they would perhaps add transient boat docks and private spaces for Gold Coast residents. The entire cost of this project would be about $40 million. No money has been raised yet. 
having the walkway at the top of the cliff would be pretty spectacular. Mm-hmm. I think the community would benefit from that greatly. And again, there's a great trade-off for the Homeowners Association because they can't afford to do this. Uh, and if they don't do something, eventually it, it won't get the buildings or maybe in the eons it would, but it's going to get their parking lots and their courts and mm-hmm. other things that they value. So very cool. I hope it comes together. Uh, that funding is always the big question. Have but, you guys been on the the Sims Park one? In oh England? yeah, I walk there weekly. It's wonderful, and it's, it's so impressive. It really is. And theirs is only theirs is not at the top of the hill. It's actually right. midway down. But yeah, it's just. I mean, and the lake is just right there. And they even have stairs down to you can get to little beach areas. Right, and the homeowners don't have access in Lakewood to. I mean, the people who live in those giant towers, they it's not like they can get to a private beach below. That mm-hmm. there is no access it's a cliff so they are talking about like cobbled beaches and it would be a benefit for everyone because it's nice to look at but the lake is even nicer if you get to be in it Mm -hmm. you're listening to today in ohio anyone who regularly listens to this podcast knows what we think about the cleveland airport travel editor and writer supreme susan glazer sat down with the new airport director to find out when we might expect improvements layla you flew through it just (laughs) this last weekend what did we learn i did well first of all yes i rarely travel by air but i did this past weekend and, and i was reminded as soon as i hit that awful security line how terrible the layout is at hopkins to say nothing of the aesthetic but i will say this i flew into dallas fort worth and believe it or not i think that place is a bigger dump I, I was shocked. That's <laughs> terrible. It's a terrible airport. But I digress. Susan uh, Susan got a chance to catch up with the new airport director, Bryant Francis, and she learned that he really gets it. <laughs> he understands all that stuff. He agrees with the rest of us that there are that these are facilities that are aging, that need extensive attention, that need modernization and improvement. And he's the guy who's going to oversee the major rebuild that will begin in 2025, which is expected to be funded mostly by the airlines. The city is still negotiating with airlines over the broad outlines of the project and the funding mechanism, but Francis said we we should hear the conclusion of that soon. And he also gave Susan some updates on a few other projects that have affected the lives of travelers lately. The construction project that has closed much of that massive smart parking garage for about a year, that should be complete next month. That'll ease the parking problems at the airport in time for the holiday rush. That's what he's promising. The Sheraton Cleveland Airport Hotel, which closed in 2022, should be torn down in the first half of next year, and that will create even more space for parking. And then two studies looking at the future of Burke Lakefront Airport downtown will be completed next year. One is looking at any potential aviation impact of closing that airport, and the other is pot- will be looking at potential alternative uses of the airport land, which is obviously on prime land right on the lake. Francis uh, avoided sharing his own opinion with Susan about what should happen at Burke. He just said he's eager to see the results of these studies. Yeah, close Burke, close Burke, close Burke. <laughs> I, uh, I, the, the whole idea of Hopkins, it's such a pit. The whole idea of airline travel. I have to go to North Carolina for an extended weekend here in the not distant future, and there's no way I'm going to fly. I'm going to drive because it's so much less aggravating and gross. Hopefully what he's predicting comes true. I still don't know where they get the money to do everything they're planning. I don't know. how I, airline, The fact that it's airlines gonna be are willing to kick to in. T- it's going to be passed to the passengers. I mean, airlines aren't like, yes, please, we have lots of extra money. Would you like some of it? No, 
we're going to end up paying higher ticket costs. But Layla, on, I think it was Thursday, Chris was like, we should have had Layla call in from the airport to give us her rundown. We could wear a GoPro as I... I was disappointed. It, they only had one person running the security check, like where they check your ticket and your look at your ID. There was only one person doing that. It was so slow. I, I maybe it's a staffing. It probably is a staffing issue that they're dealing with. But everybody's dealing with staffing issues. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for the Tuesday episode. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll be back Wednesday. 